Good morning, happy Sabbath. <clears throat> and thank you so much for that wonderful bouquet of flowers and uh, your appreciation. Tanil and I are absolutely thrilled to be with you. And uh, Aaron, could you give me a little bit more in the full? There we go. Thank you. Well, did you make it through this week? Well, it's not applause, just in case someone voted a different way. All right. <laughs> well, regardless of how you voted, I think everyone can agree that we're thankful this is only once every four years. Amen? Praise the Lord for that. And uh, I want to read, before we get into our message proper, Paul's admonition of who we are to pray for. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. First of all, then I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be offered on behalf of all men for kings and all those in authority so that we may lead tranquil and quiet lives in all goodness and dignity. This is good and pleasing in the sight of of our God and Savior. So we can do that. Pray for those in authority. Pray for this country and our leadership. And we know that ultimately the Lord is in control. And we know the end of the story. Amen. So let's bow our heads together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to come into your presence. We thank you that we can check in any time throughout the day. We thank you that you're a God that hears and answers our prayers. We pray for this country and the new leadership. We pray that you would bless this country. We thank you for the privileges and the religious liberty that we now experience. We pray that you would be with us now as we open your word May you speak to us, for we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. In his book, Malcolm Gladwell, well, imagine that you see his book on the screen. Um, in his book, Malcolm Gladwell describes little things that can make a big difference. It's in his book called The Tipping Point, and he gives this interesting illustration of using a piece of paper to describe something called geometric progression. It would help if I turned this on. Oh, my. We're just having a wonderful time today, aren't we? All right, here we go. Uh, he describes it's called geometric progression. You get a piece of paper, and when you fold it in half, the thickness of that piece of paper doubles. You fold it in half again, it doubles again. And physically, it's only possible to fold the piece of paper seven times. You can't do any more than seven, maybe eight, but it gets very difficult and virtually impossible. But according to the laws of geometric progression, if you were physically able to fold that sheet of paper, let's say 43 times, the mathematicians have come to the conclusion that the thickness of that sheet of paper would be the distance 
from the earth to the moon. And I didn't believe it either when I first read this. I said, is this science fiction? I've got to make sure I'm reading the right genre here, all right? Uh, 43 times, and I, I double-checked this, 43 times it reaches the moon, and if you were able to fold it 50 times, it would reach almost to the sun. You fold it one more time, 51, and it's to the sun and back. Now, Malcolm Gladwell goes on in his description saying that as human beings, we have a hard time with this kind of progression because the end result, the effect, seems far out of proportion to the cause. In other words, when we have something of such a great effect, like reaching the sun with just 50 folds of a simple sheet of paper, we naturally assume that it must have some huge cause. Great effects must have proportionally great causes and vice versa. This is the way that we think. And this is not only true for the physical world, this is true for the spiritual world as well. And today I'd like to talk about something that seems so basic, yet has exponentially profound results. And I want to invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to the book of Mark, chapter 1, verse 35, as we look at the life of Jesus, at the private life of Jesus, and we see a glimpse as to what that inner sanctum of his private life was like. And this is at the beginning of his ministry in Mark chapter 1 verse 35. The Bible says, now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place and there he prayed. Matter of fact, there's other times when the Bible actually tells us that Jesus went off to the mountain to pray and he spent the whole night in prayer. The Bible says in Luke chapter 5, verse 16, but Jesus himself would often slip away, <laughs> slip away to the wilderness and pray. So this was something that Jesus did on a regular basis. He would pull away from the multitudes and he would go apart and spend significant time in prayer. Now, as I reflected on this notion of Jesus spending significant time in prayer, we're not just talking about praying before a meal, which we often forget, or we often forget that we've prayed. Have you ever done that before? You pray, and it's become so ritualistic, and then you're like, did we pray? All right? Or have you ever been praying and you get lost in thought, going off and so forth? I remember when I was single, I'd be like, Lord, I pray for Mary. Please be with Mary. And then I would doze off and then I'd wake up and I'd be like, oh, Lord, I need to get married. You know, and you, you go off in your thoughts and, and so forth. But this is talking about significant, intense time in prayer that Jesus spent with his Lord. Now, I asked this question why did Jesus need to pray? <laughs> I mean, the very posture of prayer implies that you have a need. But Jesus prayed, and he prayed often. 
He prayed before the most important events, and, and I think of this puzzling verse where in John chapter 5, verse 30, Jesus said, I myself, I can do nothing. This is unusual because Jesus said, I can do nothing except through the Father. Now, the mystery of the incarnation is this, is that when Jesus came to this earth, he set aside his divinity. He was always God, but he chose not to tap into his divinity, and he depended on the Father for everything. Everything that he did, he depended on the Father for. I read this incredible statement in Desire of Ages, page 664. Jesus revealed no qualities and exercised no powers that men may not have through faith in him. His perfect humanity is that which all his followers may possess if they will be in subjection to God as he was. Wow. In other words, Jesus was so dependent on the Father and everything that he did on this earth, he did through the Father's power. He is an example of how we are to depend upon him. Amen? And that's why he says in John chapter 15, verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. In other words, the way that Jesus overcame by depending on the Father is the same way that we can overcome by total dependence upon Jesus. The key for the Christian is that paradigm of making sure that we are always connected. Total dependence. That is the paradigm. When we start focusing on the fruits, now the Bible tells us that if we are connected to Jesus, the fruits will naturally result. If you're connected to the vine, the fruits are a natural byproduct of that connection. And what the devil likes to have us do is get so focused on fruit manufacturing that we sever our connection. And so we, we try this impossible task of trying to produce fruit without be, being connected to the vine. But if we are connected to the vine, the fruits will naturally result. And the devil gets us into legalism where we are trying to manufacture fruit without being connected. So the paradigm of the Christian is total dependence upon Jesus every single moment throughout the day, and prayer is that medium of how we stay connected to Jesus. I think of this quotation from the book on prayer, page 12, prayer is the breath of the soul. We can get by, I don't know about me, but several weeks without food. We can go days without water, but we can only go minutes without breathing. Matter of fact, breathing is so foundational to life that we are hardwired to breathe involuntarily. Can you imagine if that wasn't so? You might say, oh, I forgot to breathe last night. I mean, that, that'd be tragic. 
So, so prayer is so foundational that, that we, we, we do it involuntarily. It's, it's wired into our brain so that we don't have to think to breathe. Now, this quotation indicates that prayer is so essential, it is like our breath. It is the breath of the soul. It is the secret of spiritual power. No other means of grace can be substituted and the health of the soul be preserved. Prayer is essential for spiritual life. Now, there's another misconception about prayer that we have to be in this specific posture of prayer to pray at all. I'm not saying that we should not be reverent or that there are appropriate times to be in a particular posture. However, prayer is the opening of the heart to God as to a friend. Not that it is necessary in order to make known to God what we are, but in order to enable us to receive Him, prayer does not bring God down to us, but brings us up to Him. Steps to Christ, page 93. So, so prayer is no, not so much about changing God, it's about changing us. That's what prayer does. And I found that when I pray infrequently, there's something that happens to my attitude. I start to become self-confident and independent. I start to think, I got this. Rather than in the posture of prayer, when we pray, it implies our dependence, our need, that we don't got this, that we need help. And so the very posture of prayer indicates that we need help from someone that is greater than us, someone that is outside of us. Now, prayer not only makes an impact in our personal life, but it makes an impact corporately in terms of corporate revival. There is no time or place in which it is inappropriate to offer up a petition to God. There is nothing that can prevent us from lifting up our hearts in the spirit of earnest prayer. In the crowds of the street, in the midst of a business engagement, we may send up a petition to God and plead for divine guidance. A closet of communion may be found wherever we are. So as you go through your day, you can be in any situation and keep that constant communication open to God, asking Him for divine guidance. Now, what was the impact of Christ's life? I would argue that in history, the life that made the most impact is the life of Jesus. No other life made more impact than his life. And it's interesting because I had a friend of mine that returned from the, the Holy Land in Israel. And I said, hey, how was it? And he said, you know, David, I was surprised because when I went over there and I read about these towns that Jesus traveled to and so forth, he was ex- expecting vast distances between these towns. And he said, you know, the Sea of Galilee, it's a lot smaller than I thought. And these towns are just these little towns that are walking distance. And when you look at it, Jesus was not a world traveler. He stayed in a relatively small geographical area, hung out with 
some peasants and fishermen and IRS agents and zealots and so forth. He hung out with them and died on the cross. Yet that life impacted the trajectory of human history. Think about that. And when you peel back his life and you go to the private life, prayer was foundational to that. One historian in his five-volume work on world history, historian and religious skeptic H.G. Wells found himself devoting the most space to Jesus Christ. He wrote, an historian like myself cannot portray the progress of humanity honestly without giving Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth the foremost place. Jesus made an impact. You can see it again in biblical history. Elijah prays, revival in Israel springs up. The book of Acts and the spread of the gospel to the entire world in one generation began in a prayer meeting. That's where it began. The Holy Spirit came down to the believers who were in a prayer meeting, and Martin Luther prays, and the Reformation begins. Great things in human history have begun because individuals have prayed. E.M. Bounds says this, God shapes the world by prayer. Prayer is God's singular condition to move ahead in His Son's kingdom. I don't understand all the dynamics of it, but somehow, in the great controversy, when you ask for God's intervention in your life, he is suddenly given license to intervene in a way that he would not have been able had you not asked. So the most powerful thing you can do in your own Christian experience is consent. Lord, please intervene in my life. And when we pray for others, there is a level of consent and permission you can give for other individuals as well. This is what we call intercessory prayer. So when you pray for your son or your daughter that is not close to the Lord or your parents or for that Bible study or for that neighbor, when you pray and say, Lord, intervene in that person's life and God goes to set events and circumstances into motion, to bring that person closer to the Lord, I believe that there's a little bit of a dialogue that takes place, much like in the book of Jude. That when God goes to intervene, and the devil says, hey, hey, what are you doing? What are you doing? He didn't ask for that. He didn't ask for that. And the Lord says, the Lord rebuke you. He didn't ask for it, but his mother did. Amen. And so there is that element, and there's times when Jesus says, when Jesus says, because of their faith, collective faith, a group of individuals that are working for the salvation of one person, when Jesus saw their faith, the centurion went to Jesus on behalf of his servant, and because of the centurion's faith, his servant was healed. So friends, if there's someone in your life that you have a burden for, there is power in intercessory prayer. One of the professors at the seminary, his name is Dr. Joseph Kidder, 
that's currently teaching there at the seminary, tells the story of how he began as a pastor. He had great ambitions for church growth. He was actually doing his doctorate in ministry in church growth. He wanted to be a church growth specialist. He landed in this one particular congregation that prior to his arrival had 80 members that were attending. They had dreamed big and they had built a church that could seat 600 and in the course of the building of that church there was a lot of infighting and animosity that took place much as uh, they do uh, many times when they start a building project and uh, the church was split and divided and the attendance went from 80 to 40 and that is when Pastor Joe Kidder arrived. And so he got out his church growth books and developed strategies and plans to build this church for the kingdom of God. He was working 60 to 80 hours a week. And he says that at the end of a year, the attendance went from 40 to 30. (laughs) And he states that he had become a church decline expert. So as you can imagine, this man was very discouraged, and so he sat in his office and he said, you know what, I don't need to do this, I need to go out and quit the ministry. He was very, very depressed, and so he typed out his resignation letter. Suddenly the doorbell rang, he went to the doorbell, or went to answer the door, and uh, his wife slipped into his office and saw that he had typed out his resignation letter. He came back and she said, "Uh, why are you wanting to resign? He said, honey, at this rate, I figure that in three years, you and I are going to be the only members of this church, so I might as well get out while I have some dignity. And she said, have you tried praying? And he says, I was deeply offended. Of course, I'm a pastor. And he says that deep down in his heart, he realized that he had been more about planning than praying. So he made a commitment that next Monday to go to the church and pray for eight hours. So he came to the sanctuary, sat in the front row, and started to pray. He said he says he says he prayed for two minutes and fell asleep for eight hours. <laughs> He's just being real. He came home, his wife asked that dreaded question, how'd it go? He said, great, for the two minutes I did pray. And so he went back the next week, and he says the next week it was a little bit better. He prayed for four minutes and then fell asleep. The next week it was back down to two. And he said that in the weeks that followed, he went through this struggle of learning how to pray. And he makes this interesting statement in this regard. He said, give me a program, strategy, or something to do, and I will do it. Spirituality is all about the submissive life and a connectedness with God, which is contrary to my nature. In the course of time, he said that the struggle turned into joy, and he started to incorporate prayer into his daily life. One Sabbath, he started his sermon, and in the midst of the sermon, he saw a family that came in, and he came to the conclusion that they must be visitors from out of town because they never have visitors from in town. And after the sermon, he engaged them and said, where are you from? 
And they said, we actually live right across the street. <laughs> he said, well, how did you end up here? They said, well, we were on a fishing trip in Alaska, no less. And the person that was with them on this fishing trip in Alaska, one evening as they were talking about the meaning of life, said casually, if you ever want to go to a church, go to the Seventh-day Adventist church. So they came back home, noticed that the Seventh-day Adventist church was right across the street, went. Pastor Joe Kidder studied with them twice a week. They were hungry for the Word of God, and in two months they were baptized. At the baptism, Pastor Kidder just broke down and gave his own testimony about how he had struggled with his prayer life and that the Lord had heard this poor preacher and brought this young couple to them. Suddenly, a 69-year-old man stood up in tears and came forward in the sanctuary and said, Pastor, I have four children that don't know the Lord. And if the Lord can hear your prayer, I believe that He can hear mine too. Will you pray for my children as I pray for them? Nine other people got up and gave testimonies. And Pastor Kidder said that there was a prayer revolution that began in that church. Individuals began to pray privately and corporately. And he says in the upcoming years, that group of 30 individuals that were so discouraged grew to 500 members by the grace of God. Joe Kidder makes this comment, we do not need more formulas. We need more filling. We do not need more plans. We need more power. We do not need more strategies. We need more of the Spirit. A.W. Tozer makes this statement, if the Holy Spirit was withdrawn from the church today, 95% of what we do would go on and no one would know the difference. If the Holy Spirit had been withdrawn from the New Testament church, 95% of what they did would stop and everybody would know the difference. We need the Spirit's power. And in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6, the Bible says, not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord Almighty. I don't understand all the dimensions of prayer, but this is one of those seemingly simple things that historically have yielded incredible results for the kingdom of God. I think of young Evan Roberts. You can read about this in your history books. He's a young preacher in Wales. He has a burden for Wales and starts to pray. He prays for hours. Many times the Lord awakes him in the middle of the night. He prays all night for Wales. He's at a prayer meeting, asks for souls to be one for Christ, asks if anyone wants to give their life to Jesus, and a few individuals stand up and say that they want to give their lives to Jesus. And this is a historical account of what happened in that community. 
Judges were presented with white gloves signifying no cases to be tried. Alcoholism was halved. At times, hundreds of people would stand to declare their surrender to Christ as Lord. Restitution was made. Gamblers and others normally untouched by the ministry of the church came to Christ. And in a course of months, a hundred thousand souls were converted to Christ. A hundred thousand. Imagine if in Anchorage, half that amount were led to the foot of the cross. And yet it started with a simple man that was willing to pray. One quotation says this, a revival need be expected only in answer to prayer. When churches are revived, it is because some individual seeks earnestly for the blessing of God. He hungers and thirsts after God and asks in faith and receives accordingly. He goes to work in earnest, feeling his great dependence upon the Lord, and souls are aroused to seek for a like blessing and a season of refreshing falls upon the hearts of men. I believe that God is more willing to pour out His Holy Spirit upon us than we can even desire it. That's what the Bible says. So the reality is God is yearning to pour out His Spirit upon us as never before. And the first condition is to ask for it, is to come before the Lord and say, Lord, please pour out Your Spirit upon us. By the way, tomorrow morning there's a prayer breakfast, 9 a.m. You're all invited to come. But more important than that is the personal commitment to private prayer. I've seen this in my own life. A number of years ago, I was a Bible worker in South Central Los Angeles. Most difficult part of L.A., arguably. And we would go door to door asking for prayer requests. Very simple. And you'll be amazed how many people are open to prayer. We knock on the doors, introduce myself, saying that we are out in the community praying for people. Do you have a prayer request? And the person would say, please pray for such and such an individual. We'd get hundreds of prayer requests, go back to our rooms and pray for those individuals and pray every other night, all night. I would not recommend this on a regular basis, but we were in evangelism. And so we, we prayed every other night, all night for these souls. We prayed for them. We'd go back and visit with them. And here we are in the heart of Los Angeles, pitching a tent, no mail out, no billboards, just personal contact. And in the course of 11 weeks, a series that was bathed in prayer, I saw individuals that I had met at the door come to the meetings and go into the waters of baptism. By the end, we had baptized over 300 souls for Christ in South Central L.A. And it was bathed in prayer. I want to close with this from 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. 
if my people, my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Do you want to see your home filled with the Holy Spirit? Your marriage revived? Your relationships restored? Your community one for the Lord Jesus? An anchorage filled with the gospel? He can do it. He will do it. And it begins with a community of faith that is willing to come together and seek the Lord. Let's bow our heads together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that we serve a God that is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We thank you that you have given us the privilege of prayer, that we can talk to you at any time during the day, and that you hear us. Father, in our individual lives, we pray that you would give us a burden and a passion to pray, to be filled with your presence and with your power. Help us to crave for you as we do air. And from this inner sanctum of the private life of prayer, we pray that it would flow out in love, graciousness to others. We pray that the Holy Spirit would be poured out on this community of faith and that it would spread through Anchorage to Alaska, to North America, and the whole world. Father, we pray that you would revive us. Give us an outpouring of the fruits of the Spirit in our lives. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.